0: and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello! So this week, we watched the much-maligned romantic dramedy Wild Mountain Time, written and directed by moonstruck screenwriter John Patrick Shanley and starring Jamie Dornan and Emily Blunt as childhood friends who've grown up living on neighboring farms and haven't ever worked out their feelings for each other. So this was an inspired and sadistic Patreon request from uh, Siobhan. (laughs) So thank you very much. Honestly, I can't wait to talk about this because... I mean, definitely the the
1: worst movie either of us have seen all year.
0: I think this is possibly the worst movie I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, (laughs) because I'm not like a real film critic, I don't have to go to like every single thing that comes out, right? So there's plenty of garbage that... People have to see like every single movie I have to see every year. I don't have to do that, but I have seen lots of appalling films. And honestly, watching this, I was just like, I don't think I've ever seen a movie as bad as this. Well, this is a really specific tier of
1: bad movie, because like it's definitely yeah. cheap. Like it's a it's a cheap low-budget movie, but it is made and stars a bunch of either famous or acclaimed people. So, the writer-director, very acclaimed. At least one of the stars. Like, Emily Blunt, that's like an A-list name. Everything else she does is, like, extremely pricey. She's getting paid gajillions of dollars by Disney to make absolute garbage. And she's like, I really want to do a project for my art. And instead of doing, like, when Scarlett Johansson does an art project, i.e. a good film, Emily Blunt was like, I'm going to look through all the screenplays I'm being sent and pick the one that's, like, objectively the worst... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Truly nonsense. Oh my god. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, obviously there's like garbage that's made for like television or whatever that's not intended to be like a real movie, which is like on its own terms, and that's fine. Whereas this was released as like a prestige film, <laughs> I just don't even know where to begin with that, I mean, we'll talk about everyone in the cast in more detail, but, like, Emily Blunt, as you say, I realized about her a couple of years ago that she only makes studio movies. Like, she does not make independent films, which I think is part of the problem with her career. I think she's very talented and I think has bad taste, as evidenced by the fact that she only stars in, like, boring studio films. And this was the exception, and I, too, would like to know... Why? (laughs) Like, what? But I mean, the most extraordinary thing here is that John Patrick Shanley wrote this. Because Moonstruck is one of the best films ever made. We
1: did an episode on Moonstruck, which is a masterpiece, incredible movie, delightful rom com. This is a writer who has written, like, both several rom-coms, and also like very serious stage plays. Have you seen Doubt? Because I have not seen Doubt, either the play or the film.
0: I have seen the film. The film is fine. I saw it when it came out, which was now over 10 years ago, so I don't remember it vividly. I think the consensus on the movie was that the movie was fine, that the play was much better. I feel like I heard someone talk about this recently on a podcast for some reason, that watching the play at the time in like, in a theater, it was clear that part of what was going on was, like, an allegory for, like, American foreign policy, as crazy as that sounds, and that obviously does not translate to the film at all or to, like, later experiences of it, unless you're thinking about it in terms of, like, its historical moment. I totally believe that the play as a play is really great, and that it just didn't quite work on the screen. Obviously, like, Viola Davis is incredible in that movie, that was how she kind of became a big name. But, like, that play won the Pulitzer. Moonstruck won the Oscar. He's done a ton of playwriting. So he's done a fair amount of screenwriting, but he's done way more work for this stage. And I have not seen, obviously, like, basically any of those plays. I don't know how good they are or not. But he's certainly an incredibly respected name in New York theater. And this movie is based on a play of his called Outside Mullinger, which was nominated for the Tony Award for Best Play. And I just, what? They've just been
1: blinded by the fact that it's John Patrick Shanley, I think. Because it's like one of these, without having seen the play, the play and the film, it seems like have very similar scripts. Obviously, it's by the same guy. The play was 2014. So six or seven years before this film was made. But like the two issues here, I think, are first of all, one of those situations where once a playwright is really good, you can get like a bunch of really amazing actors and directors to make something seem better, which to me, the example would be like the Harry Potter play where you read, you read the play and you're like, this is the worst thing I've ever read. But people who see it are like, Oh, it's actually like an amazing spectacle. And the other factor at play here is the fact that he's an American playwright, like he's an Irish American playwright. And this is a play and a movie that are set in Ireland And this will, we were going to be talking about this at length in this movie, but um, the response from the American critics and the Irish critics is clearly very different. And um, when you watch this movie, you're like, this is set in like fake Ireland. (laughs) It's set in like the Ireland of people's imagination.
0: So I read a great article after seeing House of Gucci, which I thought was really bad, that was basically like using the, like, it's impossible to be racist against Italian memes, to be like, but maybe you can be, and this movie would be an example. And obviously the article was tongue-in-cheek, but pointing out that, like, this film had just had no understanding of the culture of Italy or Italian people, which is a sentiment I agree with. And I was watching this and I was like, if it were possible to be racist against Irish people, which obviously is impossible, but like this movie feels racist but against like, Irish yeah, it's people like it's, to me. like it's
1: wound by the clock to 1920 <laughs> when like that was like a thing.
0: It's earlier than 1920. The film critic Helen O'Hara, who is from Northern Ireland, was saying to you on Twitter that this is totally like a pre-famine thing and yeah. it hadn't occurred to me but Well that's what I was thinking bright. while I was watching
1: the movie because it's like you always when you see a lot of like Irish American people talk about Ireland it's really clearly rooted in like the old country and when their great grandparents came over and that's what they imagine Ireland is like and that's what she was saying on Twitter but like The other thing that came out to me as soon as I started watching is like, although that's the vibe, like the vibe is, oh, we're imagining the old country, which is like fucking Hobbiton or something, the way everyone's like dressed and styled in the interior decor is like early 20th century. So it kind of looks like the film is taking place in the pre-war era, but it's meant to be the present day and the two protagonists are allegedly millennials. So
0: yeah, I mean, I think we all had the experience and I had the great pleasure of Sending this trailer to a friend who who then had this experience last week of watching the trailer and realizing it wasn't a period film. Yeah. And being like, <laughs> What? Like what the fuck?
1: Because the trailer is like, oh, we've got this like amazing like farm setting with these people who are falling in love in the extremely bright green fields of Ireland, which look like they've probably been digitally colour corrected and oh, everyone is yes. wearing these beautiful knit sweaters in shades of like, you know, autumnal colours. And then like two thirds of the way through the trailer, Emily Blunt is like, oh, and maybe I should freeze my eggs. And it's like, freezer, what? (laughs) What technology? We only just invented the
0: phone. Pardon me? Yeah. The New York Times reviewed this very favorably. Their theater critic, Charles Isherwood, was like, he says, it represents Mr. Shanley's finest work since Doubt, which is, again, just hilarious to me. And he clarifies, like, it's obviously not as important or as good as Doubt. Yeah, it's meant to be a light entertainment play. Yeah, but he's like, but the writing is lyrical, the production is great, and I totally believe the production was excellent, and the actors are very talented people who are in this but, like, my jaw's on the floor. And meanwhile, (laughs) the Wikipedia page just said, the play was less well-reviewed by Irish publications, with Fintan O'Toole of the Irish Times describing it as mystifyingly awful and beyond the edge of awfulness. And I was like, yes, that does seem, like, more correct to me than whatever the (laughs) fuck the Americans were like, eh, it's charming. What's really
1: hilarious about this is that as soon as this trailer came out, people were immediately like deriding it, right? Because this film is like patently absurd and really bad. And that is very noticeable when the movie stars very famous people. (laughs) But like, the backlash was like partly just people being like, what the fuck is this movie? It looks appalling. And how does it look like it's set in the past when it's actually in the present? And also a lot of people are dissing the accents because most of the main cast aren't Irish. But when you look at like the way they're PR department like handled this because I was looking up interviews with Emily Blunt and Jamie Dornan and stuff to be like so what did they say about this movie and the answer is they're like fucking dodging and diving they're ducking and weaving right (laughs) Because like they can't say oh I'm really proud of what a great film we've made like you can't say that objectively you'll look like an idiot so it's like they'll be talking about their other projects and they'll be talking about how exciting it was to get a call from John Patrick Shanley and they'll talk about how nice it was to work together and it's like, oh yeah, we all got addicted to the same like energy drink that The Rock gave Emily Blunt while they were filming Jungle Cruise together and we called it Acting Juice and I'm like, interesting okay right you've got like the the g-rated version of you were all in a cocaine vendor fine and then the interviewer will have to ask like oh yeah well people have been criticizing this movie and they will all just talk about the accents they're all like oh yeah people are very judgmental by the accents but it was an intentional choice because john patrick shanley wanted to make sure that everyone could understand what we were saying so we had simplified <laughs> accents and i'm like well first of all you all definitely have different accents because christopher walken god bless him iconic character actor cannot <laughs> do any other accent other than his normal accent Emily Blunt is, to my uneducated ears, making a bold stab at it. Jamie Dornan is Irish, but like,
0: chaos. But that was not the main problem with the movie. The main problem with the movie is that it's appalling. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we're going to get into the origins of this movie in one second, but... Reedy accents. I couldn't tell if even Jamie Dornan was doing his (laughs) real accent because he's from the North and they're definitely not in the North. I don't
1: think they are. I don't. Yeah, I think he is changing his accent.
0: I think he's put on an accent. And he's not a good actor either. So it's like,
1: it's very weird tonally.
0: But also I couldn't, all the accents were so out of control that I was like, maybe he sounds fine. And my brain is just like short circuiting trying to like figure out what's happening.
1: Oh, I should add actually, for those who just hear us repeatedly saying Jamie Dornan, I feel like he's not a household name, but Fifty Shades guy is. He is the Fifty Shades guy.
0: I think he's pretty well known at this point, actually. Um, I mean, I felt like he was really committing and trying hard in this appalling film. Well, he's which clearly I could desperate respect. to
1: escape being thought of as the Fifty Shades guy. So he was like, I want to take on a quirky role. It's like you want to work with John Patrick Shanley because he's iconic. Completely reasonable logic there. It's just unfortunate that you decided to plow ahead with that, despite having read the script with your own two eyes.
0: <laughs> Correct. Emily Blunt, the accent, awful. So bad. Every time she tries to do the, like, when Irish people, some Irish people make a TH sound, it kind of is shortened. And she was doing the full, like, the <laughs> like, at the front of, like, so many words. Horrendous. Horrendous. Her performance also just, like, I don't even know what was happening. I think she's the worst person in this movie. I think she's fully like what what the fuck. Well, also her is character happening. is
1: like impenetrable. Oh, yes.
0: I mean, there's no way to give a good performance as that character. It, it's all it's all bad. I I think we should give like a better
1: just overview of what the film is about cuz obviously most people are not going to have watched this and you shouldn't.
0: <laughs> I mean, if you want to watch something that's just horrible <laughs> and confusing. i found it confusingly quite,
1: horrible <laughs>
0: quite watchable in a like mesmerizing train wreck kind of way as opposed to sometimes when you watch a really bad movie and you're just like this is punishing i was totally engaged the whole time just like rubbernecking because
1: well, the-, the, the tone right is kind of there are some scenes which seem like a mediocre stage play. Like it's very theatrical dialogue style and it's kind of blocked a bit like a stage play. So you'll have like Christopher Walken and an old Irish lady standing in a kitchen having a conversation. And some scenes are like really bad British and Irish rom-coms where they just do stupid slapstick, but it's not funny. And then other scenes, they're having quite dark conversations about death and the meaning of existence and stuff. And then there'll just be a shot of the Irish countryside and a bunch of farms. And no, no one's lives make sense in the background of this because none of the characters act either like relatable, normal human beings or like fun caricatures. Cause you know, there's loads of movies and TV shows. Like I kept thinking about stuff like Pushing Daisies where the tone is intentionally really silly and over the top and people don't behave like normal people, but it has its own internal logic and every individual person in this movie has their own internal logic and they're all clashing off each other like it's a fucking pinball machine of different narratives.
0: Yeah, so basically the setup is that Jamie Doran and Emily Blunt have grown up on these two farms that are next to each other and they've been in love with each other since they were children. But despite the fact that they are, well, in the play it sounds like they're more obviously like admittedly middle-aged and in this they like try to avoid talking about it, but like Clearly, I mean, the actors are
1: like in their late 30s. Emily Blunt's character is more in love with him. Like, she's pining after him and she's like staying there. But the problem is that, like, throughout the film, they kind of say this two or three times, and there is no kind of evidence of her being in love with him. And their relationship makes no sense, and there is no kind of build up of their romance, which is essentially the opposite of what happens in Moonstruck.
0: (laughs) Yes, there's no chemistry. You just have to take it on face value that, like, the movie has told you that that's the setup, right? And her father dies at the beginning, and then her mother, who's also very elderly and not doing well, says to Christopher Walken, who plays Jamie Dornan's dad, like, have you figured out what you're doing in terms of the legal stuff to pass on the farm to Jamie Dornan? And he's like, well, I haven't decided whether I'm going to leave it to him or, like, sell it. And Jamie Dornan, who hears this, is incredibly upset because he spent his whole life, like, working on this farm. And the excuse that Christopher Walken gives is that he hasn't gotten married yet, and the farm. And has also, to he alludes on. to Jamie
1: Dornan being mad. He's like, "Oh, you're just like yes. your old uncle who tried to jump into the lake."
0: It's like Kelly's and Riley's or something, and Christopher Walken is a Riley, and he's a Kelly because he takes after his mom. So, like, it can't go into your hands, and you haven't gotten married and had a kid. So, like how could I possibly give this to you?
1: And once again, this is all meant to be happening in the present day, but no one has cell phones or like Tinder. The only person you can possibly marry is the person in the farm next door. And you all live in little cottages where the interior, it looks like it's 1935.
0: Also, her house is like a bed and breakfast. Yeah. It is so nice. (laughs) Yeah. And it's not clear how the farming works. Like I realize
1: that logistical criticisms aren't what you should be having in a movie that's like a rom-com. Because obviously you don't watch The Holiday and go, wow, this doesn't make any sense. But it
0: I really mean, does feel noticeable. Do I mean, yeah, I hate The Holiday. The holiday but you know like, what I mean. The Holiday fucking
1: sucks. But like <laughs> movies of that type, like obviously you don't particularly need like a lighthearted rom-com to have like coherent logistics. But in this film, it just goes so far. You're like, what is happening right
0: now? It's completely bananas. And so he basically is like, I have to propose to Emily Blunt, Jamie Dornan is, so that I can keep the farm. And because he's been in love with her, but they've like never discussed this or like kissed. I mean, like, to
1: me, if anything, it was ambiguous <laughs> that he was even meant to be in love with her. Oh, he's clearly half. meant
0: to be in love with her. I mean, come on. It's a romantic comedy. I, and know, like, what, I mean,
1: I knew how they were meant to end up together, but I was just watching it and I was like, where am I meant to be with Jamie Dornan right now? <laughs>
0: No, he's clearly in love with her, but he like can't express it. And he like gets the ring that was his late mother's wedding ring and is like gonna propose to her. But it falls out of his pocket. So instead of talking to her about his feelings, he spends the entire movie trying to find this ring with a metal detector.
1: Meanwhile, his cousin comes over to check out the farm, because Christopher Walken is like, I'm gonna import a different man to pass the farm on to. And this cousin is played by John Hamm who is in a completely different movie from everyone else cuz John Hamm is playing an absolutely solid John Hamm. He's funny, he's charming, his role is that he's the sexy middle-aged American. He's not doing anything particularly exciting, but it's very clear in the kind of different types of actor that you have in this where it's like Christopher Walken is just miscast and is I mean whatever. The two leads are appalling, but John Hamm is doing a pretty good job cuz he apparently can really be acceptable with any amount of material. But it is like he is an alien because he comes in from America and he will occasionally be acting like a normal human would react in this situation. And then occasionally just go off on tangents about essentially exoticizing Ireland and being like, oh, why are you all like like this? Everyone in Ireland, you're just willing to live with loneliness. And it's like, what are you talking about? Like no
0: one talks like this. What is happening? Yes. For the most part, though, he acts pretty much like a normal human, yeah. which is very funny because he kind of reacts the way that you, the audience are reacting, right? Because he's just playing like a normal rich man. And then he's confronted
1: with Emily Blunt and Jamie Dornan who are mad.
0: Right. And he's like, what is happening? Like, what are these people doing? Why are they reacting this way? Like he shows up with a bunch of like fancy presents and they're like scandalized and are like, well, why have you done this? And he's like, because it impresses people. Like, I don't, like, (laughs) that's what you do if you have money. And then when he sort of finds out that they have this tormented romantic situation, he just absolutely is baffled, as he should be, because it makes no fucking sense.
1: I should add also that Emily Blunt's appearance was enthralling me throughout this film. Yes. Because (laughs) her styling really plays into the whole romanticized Irish stereotype situation because they've got her, they've given her hair a slightly gingery tint, but they've given her highlights that are like extremely fake looking highlights. So it's like not not natural look, but she is also meant to be sort of natural fresh faced farmer. And the outfits they've got her wearing are occasionally she'll be wearing a sort of white fake Regency dress, but with like wellies and a jacket because it's the modern day. And there's several scenes where she's wearing a big shawl, which once again, like it's the 1850s. And various other kind of cottage core outfits, but not in the way that a real life millennial would wear a cottage core outfit because it's not meant to be an affectation. It's just like, I'm Irish and this is how we look. But crucially, <laughs> at the same time, Emily Blunt has her own makeup. Because after a few scenes, I was like, Emily Blunt's face looks incredibly expensive. And I was going on my phone and I was like, Googling Emily Blunt's personal makeup artist because a lot of A-list stars will have their same makeup artist in every film. And yeah, it's her own fucking makeup artist who comes with her to every film, which is why she's got this like incredible glowing skin and like tinted lips and all this stuff. And it's like, that is not a no makeup look. It's like, it is a no makeup, no makeup look. I can see how much money has gone into this face. And then occasionally they'll like spatter some mud on her to show how rural she is. And I'm just like, this is appalling.
0: (laughs) But it's like mud over the lipstick and the mascara and like, It's not even a no makeup look. It's like full on face. Yeah, well, it's like it's like um,
1: the glass sheen foundation where you get like it kind of luminous glow. And I
0: was like, what is is happening here? She also like I know it's complicated to talk about actors' appearances in this way, especially obviously female actors. But like Emily Blunt has had a lot of Botox. Like she's done that to her face within the past couple years. And obviously a ton of actresses do this, and so you kind of have to just be like, okay, Nicole Kidman's playing a character in the 1950s who definitely would not have looked like this, but I guess that's just the reality of Hollywood now. But the Emily Blunt situation in this movie, like, the fact that she definitely has had some work done to her face, which, like, is of course her right, plus the makeup, plus the, like, vibe the movie is trying to create, which is, like, they're just- These completely natural people who just live on the land is so ludicrous. Like everything about it is so preposterous that you're just like, you're just like so offended on behalf of Ireland. Like it's just like every time an Irish person
1: complains about Irish Americans coming over or like even never visiting Ireland and having this like ridiculous cartoonish image of what the country is like. It's like you literally just made this movie of that.
0: So we had to talk about this article that John Patrick Shanley wrote for the New York Times when the play was in theaters, where he describes the like origin story of this play. I feel a little bit bad that we're ragging on John Patrick Shanley so hard, and we will do so more when we talk about the direction of this movie, which I think is like equally responsible for its badness as the writing. You know, he tried... But he has like an Oscar and a Tony and a Pulitzer and we are... But I mean, this is like a 65 time. year
1: old man wrote this play. A
0: yeah. seasoned, seasoned playwright. And this article, I was just like clutching my face with embarrassment. It's, it's bad. So he basically says that when he was uh, like 22 years old, very young writer, I think he says that he maybe was even still at NYU at the time, which is where he went to college, that he went to some luncheon for Irish-American writers and there were like luminaries there and he left and the takeaway was not like, wow, that was amazing. But like, I don't want to be like these people. I'm not going to be like an Irish-American writer, which was very much a genre at the time. And then he wanted to write about all different kinds of people, which like, fair enough. So Italian-Americans, he says, became kind of his specialty. And we think we talked about on the Moonstruck episode that one of the things that's kind of funny about that movie is that he's not Italian-American and that's like the ultimate Italian-American movie. And like, it's beloved by that community, right? Like it kind of is stereotypical in a certain way, but it feels very loving. And yeah, and like
1: people feel like it feels like an authentic
0: caricature. Yes, correct. But he is Irish-American and he talks about how it took him like decades to get around to sort of being willing and able to write about that part of his identity, which unfortunately was this play. (laughs) So, this article is full of just these like quotes that really inform what's going on here. So, the specific background to the play was that like when his father was quite elderly, he asked John Patrick Shanley to take him back to like the town in Ireland where he himself had grown up, and they had this really emotional experience, which then informed this play. But John Patrick Shanley writes, I'm Irish as hell. Kelly on one side, Shanley on the other. My father had been born on a farm in the Irish Midlands. He and his brother had been shepherds there, cattle and sheep back in the early 1920s. I grew up surrounded by brogues and Irish music, but stayed away from the old country till I was over 40. I just couldn't own being Irish. And like, that is so Irish Americans being like, I'm so fucking Irish. I'm so Irish. You couldn't believe it look at my last names like but of course i haven't ever actually been to ireland until i was 40 years old and then like you know he describes going there as his atlantis the lost and beautiful world of my poet's heart which again i'm glad he had this meaningful experience but like but it's also like you went to ireland
1: in like the 90s and that's what you took away from this and i'm like in the 90s (laughs)
0: Well, he also says, so Jamie Dornan's character's name in this is Anthony, and the like two of the older, I think the the mom, the parents are named Mary and Tony, and that's the names of the characters in the play. And he's like, my cousin Anthony was not perfectly delighted that I had written a play set on his farm and that the main character was named Anthony. Like no fucking shit, man. (laughs) Do you think he was annoyed that you wrote this play where the main character is a total lunatic and you named him after your cousin? Like I just, what? There's other names. (laughs) And he like took all the, like the creative team from the play, like to go visit them. And this poor guy was just like, why am I dealing with this? Like, no.
1: And then, of course, the the play was just getting dunked on by, like, every Irish Twitter user. Like, when the trailer came out.
0: <laughs> so I'm, like, one-eighth of Irish descent, basically. So, like, my mom's... My dad's side of the family's been in America for, like, forever. And then my mom's family... It's, my mom is half German and half Irish. So I would not describe myself as, like, an Irish-American, Culturally, I was not involved in like a Irish American community in quotes, right? Like I just grew up in like the WASPy suburbs in New England. But my grandmother, I definitely would describe that way, and I was very close to her growing up. Like she was someone who went to Ireland once when she was pretty old, and I don't think would have had any real understanding of like what Ireland was as a place. But it was really like she loved talking about being Irish, and that was clearly meaningful to her, and. Actually, like, they had been Catholic when they came over. I think it was probably during the famine. But somehow had become not Catholic. And then, like, she she didn't hate Catholic people, but she loved to complain about Catholicism. So there was all this kind of factional stuff. But because no one liked to talk about German heritage in, like, the mid-20th century, like, the Irish stuff was what got talked about by the time I was born. So I was always really fascinated by it, even if it wasn't something that was, like, actively going on. And so, like I studied... Irish literature in college, like, I read a lot of books by Irish writers, I'm interested in Irish history, and I wouldn't call myself an expert by any means, but, like, I definitely feel like I have a pretty decent understanding of, like, Ireland as an actual place. And so watching this movie, I was just, like, literally, what is happening? Like, (laughs) I was, like, offended on behalf of Ireland as a result of my, like, small personal connection, right? It is this complete archaic fantasy And I think because I don't have the same connection that someone like John Patrick Shanley would have, where like his childhood and community really were about like being an Irish American person, the pre-famine thing that Helen O'Hara was talking about, like that hadn't really occurred to me. But as soon as she said it, I was like, oh, that's completely right, right? Whereas if your family is here, but the Irishness is still so important, but if they came in like the mid-19th century then the old country in quotes is what is going. Yeah, it's what's to be like preserved, frozen in right? time,
1: and everyone talks about like yeah. it's like food that people were eating in like eighteen sixty.
0: Yes, and there's so much that's happened in Ireland recently that, in a way, mirrors things that happened in like earlier parts of its history, and in other ways, is totally different. I mean, the whole Celtic Tiger thing, right, in like the last fifteen years, that is nowhere in this film because like that would be dealing with reality and that's not what this movie is doing. But there is all this stuff about like Christopher Watkins' voiceover is like it's said that if an Irish man dies while telling a story and then like blah 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 blah. But then also there's all these so you've got the stereotypes of like the Irish as these like really garrulous like storytelling folk, which drives me nuts. I had took a class in college with the writer Colin Tobin famous Irish novelist, and he he used to complain all the time about the, like, people being like, well, it just comes naturally to the Irish, to, like, be storytellers. And he was like, I worked fucking hard to be able to write novels. Like, this is not just some, like, innate talent, right? But then also there are these stereotypes in this, which I don't think I've really encountered before, that, like, the Irish just are really quiet and don't want to talk about their feelings ever, and that, you know... Yeah, I was a bit
1: confused. It was kind of like they were making up new stereotypes. Yeah. It's almost a unique position for a filmmaker and a film setting to be in, right? Because like, obviously the vast majority of movies in the Western canon are made by white people, particularly white men. So that's like the perspective they're mostly coming from. And we're very used to seeing movies that are extremely colonialist. So like movies that are just like racist and anti-black, but also in Britain, there's loads of movies that just are have really offensive and nostalgic attitudes towards the colonization of India. Like that sort of British colonial attitude. And to me, like in this film, it's that sort of vibe, right? Because it's nostalgic. But this is also a movie that's coming from a place of like, oh, I'm trying to express my own authentic heritage of someone who comes from an immigrant background. In other movies where it's like the immigrant experience or like the experience of being like a third generation person, it's like the opposite of this, right? Because it's like usually when that type of film gets made, they're of a much higher quality because it's like people who have had to like fight to get their movies made. And then they'll have like a really thoughtful, introspective examination of their own cultural identity. And in this, it's like someone who simultaneously has come from like what used to be an oppressed minority in America. And there's a really strong sense of cultural identity and there's a really strong attachment to the motherland. And then also the film is offensive toward like where they've come from and is really stupid and doesn't depict anything that like resembles real life. You really don't see that like anywhere else,
0: yeah. I think you put that really well, and like it is such a bizarre position for the movie to be in, right? because, as I said, Again, like, of course, it is impossible to be racist to Irish people. Like, I'm being kind of tongue-in-cheek. But, like, that is the vibe that kind of comes off the movie, right? Where you're just like, this is so offensive. Like, this is appalling. But it's not coming from, like, the colonizer. It's coming from someone whose family was forced to leave because of the famine. And yet the, like, images that he has somehow internalized of the place that his family was functionally exiled from are completely condescending.
1: I mean, I remember when the trailer came out, people were like, this looks like a butter commercial.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the craft of the film, the script is awful, but I think the thing that pushes it over the edge, like as we were saying about the stage play, I think it's clear that the American critics were way too generous, but I can believe that if you've got great actors, it's directed really well, it would be watchable and, you know... Okay, But John Patrick Stanley, the only other thing that I'm aware of him directing is Joe versus the Volcano in 1990, which is kind of like a famous cult kind of bad movie. He can't direct a film. Like, this is just
1: so bad. I mean, the tone is all over the place, but also it's a very low budget venture, right? Like, it's a $5 million yeah. movie, which is, again, why it's really surprising to see Emily Blunt and Christopher Walken in this movie, you know? And they filmed it in something like four weeks, So they didn't have a lot of time to reshoot stuff and things. And there's also loads of scenes where people are just like outdoors in the rain. They have like a dinner party outdoors in the rain. And it's like, I'm not from Ireland, but I'm from next door. And when it's pouring with rain, you go indoors. (laughs) Like, you know, they had to use like every filming day. So they're fucking having all these scenes when it's pouring with rain.
0: Yeah. And there are all these jokes about the rain. And then a few scenes where clearly like they've manufactured rain. Yeah, there's there's fake rain rain. because
1: there needs to be like dramatic rain.
0: Yeah, but then every shot of, like, the vista of the country. Fluorescent green.
1: Butter commercial sunlight. green. Yep.
0: Yeah. The movie opens on a shot of the Cliffs of Moher, which are these famous, like, very, very steep cliffs on the west of Ireland. Uh, if you've seen The Princess Bride, the, the part where they're climbing the the cliffs, that's shot there. But it clearly takes place in the Midlands. Like, this is not a movie that takes place by the oceans at all. But they were like, well, we got to get that visual in. So we're just going to stick that in at the beginning.
1: I think you can, like, email the Irish tourist board and be like, have you got any helicopter shots? Yeah.
0: I genuinely was wondering if a lot of it was stock footage. Because the color is different on the stuff that looks like stock footage versus the normal movie. Which also is shot poorly, but not as poorly. <laughs> so I think it might actually be a situation where that's happening. But there's just this feeling of, like, awkwardness with the actors as well. I mean, obviously the dialogue's so awful, but, like, what are you going to do? But they clearly feel really uncomfortable. And none of it comes off at all. And so the whole time you're just like, why is anyone behaving in this manner? Like, nothing makes sense. Well, there's no chemistry.
1: And... The female lead in particular doesn't make sense because like the male lead, the problem is, right, that this movie has a, a what is now an infamous twist in the end, which if you know it in advance, which we did, the movie is in some ways funnier, but the twist is more funny if you don't know it. Jamie Dornan's character does make more sense when you know that. But like Emily Blunt's character just doesn't make sense at all because it's just like, why are you behaving like this? if you're in love with this guy, why aren't you pursuing him in anything resembling like a normal way? Because it's not like she's like, oh, I'm pining from afar or like, oh, I'm really shy or we have a combative screwball relationship. It's just like you're acting in a way that doesn't like even feel recognizable to me as a person or as like a consumer of narrative.
0: (laughs) Well- (laughs) Obviously, like, he's quite awkward and shy, and they've got this blockage in their relationship. Yeah. And, like, look, consent is very important, but she needs to just kiss him. Like, she just needs to kiss him and get it over with, and then the movie would ha- wouldn't exist, right? Because the only thing that's impeding any of this is that they just- can't be together for reasons that make no sense because they're both adults.
1: They're 35 years old and they live on these farms where it's unclear what exactly they're farming, like maybe sheep, but they don't do any of the farming. Also, one of the kind of characterization points for Emily Blunt is that she's really into ballet and like her father gives her a Swan Lake themed pep talk toward the beginning of the movie. And then like halfway through when she meets John Hamm and John Hamm is kind of starting to woo her. She's like, I've never been to the ballet. And I was like, oh, of course, because there's no ballet in Ireland. So she flies to New York for one day and they go to the ballet together and she's like, amazing. And then she goes home and like the movie continues. And I was like, what the fuck is happening here?
0: I would also like to point out that they go to the ballet at the... New York City Center and not at the New York City Ballet. I assume because the New York City Ballet, which is definitely, quote, the ballet in New York City, was like, you cannot shoot this fucking movie in in here. Like, get out. I will never judge
1: a movie for being low budget because it's like you have to work around things. But it was quite funny to see both the shots when they're on the airplane and like the shot when she goes to the ballet because it's really obvious the tight close-up of her just in like some seats. And then they've paid for like four extras to sit beside her. And then they'll have like a separate shot of the stage. So it's like, she's definitely not at the ballet. And then when John Ham is on the plane, I'm like, this is the cheapest possible fake plane set you can buy. Because once again, it's him, the woman who's sitting next to, who he has a conversation with, and like maybe one other extra. And I'm like, yep, I can see the budget showing here. And it's like, no disrespect. One has to do what one can. But it's very funny for Emily Blunt and John Hamm specifically to be in this scenario.
0: Yes. Also, I obviously am totally with you on budget stuff, but when the whole, when the, like so much importance is put on like she's going to go to the ballet in New York because of course there are no other options for her closer to home. It just doesn't make any sense. And like they show the outside of the theater. Just don't show it, right? Like you don't have to do that because that's not where the ballet lives. So and when oh you God. think
1: of the scene in Moonstruck where they go to the opera and it's like an incredible right. scene when Cher and Nick Cage go to the opera, it's like muah Perfect.
0: And they barely even show the opera that. It's all about them, right? Just yeah. like It's about banding. the
1: experience of Shara being yeah. like unbelievably hot. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just I'm trying to think if there was any other just a like, complete nonsense before we get to the the twist. No, let's drop the twist. Yeah. Which I think
1: probably quite a lot of listeners will be aware of because this is like the yes. one thing everyone was talking about. But like yeah. the wildest element of the twist is that it's like they don't like examine it. No. (laughs) If you know what to look for it's kind of foreshadowed. And it's in the play because I remember when the trailer came out, I found this review of the play that was just like boggling because they were like, I don't understand why the other critics aren't mentioning this because it's such a fucking bizarre left field thing. But like toward the end when Emily Blunt and Jamie Dornan have had this big long scene where they're confronting each other about their feelings. And like there there's interviews with Jamie Dornan where he was like, oh, it's fantastic to get to do such a long scene by such an impressive playwright. Like you never get to do this range. And it's like, Jamie, it's because you had to do like three Fifty Shades movies and your brain is broken. And I understand that, but that scene isn't good. And then the big reveal is he's like, I'm a bee.
0: Or says, I believe. I believe
1: I'm a bee.
0: I'm a honeybee. Yeah.
1: And this movie is like, it has this sort of, quaint old Irish like fairy tale vision of like the local madman of the village basically. His characterization is like he's a quirky rom-com weirdo and like Christopher Walken's like oh you remind me of your old mad uncle and then you get to this point and it's like well if this was like a contemporary drama you'd be like okay this person has like a long-running lifelong delusion right it's like we've now got into the realm of like not like quirky madness it's like oh mental illness which is that he literally believes that he is a bee And they deal with this for, I would say, roughly three minutes. And then they get together and the film ends. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? This is not a metaphor for anything.
0: What is happening? I was so baffled. Because, of course, that's the thing that everybody knows about this movie. Like, I'd seen the clip. It was totally all over Twitter when this movie came out last year. And it's completely just like, I cannot begin to fathom where this idea comes from as a writer. Like, I, I got nothing. But... As you say, like, it is fully the climax of the film. And then she's basically just like, well, I sometimes believe I'm an animal too. And like, do you want to marry me? And he's like, yes. And he thinks that she's a flower so they can be together. There's so much, we barely even gotten into like the retrograde gender stuff. <laughs> yeah, this like film. in the final oh third, time, my God. Like, like
1: it's always like kind of sexist, like, cause it's all this sort of stuff where like, oh, you have to marry someone to like have the farm and stuff. But like in the final like quarter or something, it suddenly got, like, really sexist. And I was like, what just happened? Like, it's not like I'm offended. I'm just, like, confused again.
0: <laughs> she has all this dialogue about how, like, I don't even, I don't even know. It was just, it was just, like, gender
1: role stuff. And I was like, what gender, what? And also, it's like, it's very funny because, like, Emily Blunt loves to market herself as this, like, power woman.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: It's because no, her, her no actual identity is she is, like, one of Hollywood's top capitalists which is why this like doesn't fit, right? If she was going to do like an art film, it should have been one of those movies where like, you know, Aaron Sorkin did that film where Jessica Chastain is like a sexy woman who runs a high-class poker joint. You know, that's the Emily Blunt zone because the rest of the time she's making low-key Republican propaganda with her husband or massive huge blockbusters for Disney. And it's like, okay, that's your, your zone. And they're like, I'm going to do art. And it's like, okay, this is just sexist. So whoever your publicity person is, they should have removed this script from your desk, <laughs> fortunately no one watched it so it's fine
0: yeah but um, I was certainly expecting that the twist would come like 20 minutes before the end of the movie and then there would be this like how do I get him to engage with me physically because he thinks he's a honeybee and that it's just hand waved away
1: and it's like no it's a prestige remake of the bee movie where the bee falls in love with the, wi- with the women there we go
0: I was so baffled, I cannot even begin to describe how confused I was by this.
1: Were they rescued from having to attend an in-person premiere by COVID? Yes. Yeah, it feels like that would be a real blessing, because the idea of having to sit down, I mean, I know a lot of movie stars skip the actual premiere, like they go in and they don't watch the film, but like, yikes. Yikes, man.
0: Well, I mean, in general, the press for this was vastly lessened by yeah. COVID. Yeah. Because... When I was looking
1: up promo interviews, I was like, I can see that they've really done the bare minimum here. Emily Blunt in particular is like, she's talking a lot about her other projects and the outfits she's wearing.
0: <laughs> I know he keeps saying this, but I simply do not understand how you could read this script. Even, I mean, obviously the explanation is that John Patrick Shanley wrote it, and you're like, oh my god, he did Moonstruck. But having actually read it, I just don't I mean, I tweeted something about how this was the worst movie I've ever seen, and you replied something about the film Serenity, starring Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway, which we watched together on vacation a few years ago and had a similar conversation of, like, how did anyone agree to be in this? And that's a movie with a very high concept premise that, like, I suspect what happened there was people signed on before the actual script was written. And in that case, that actually makes perfect sense to me, because the idea is Totally interesting. It's just that it's executed terribly. So I was like, okay, so if McConaughey is like, yeah, sounds great, and then has already signed on, and then the script gets to him, and he's like, well, I guess I'm doing this. Or even if the script is bad, like it does have this high concept thing that I could see an agent being like, oh, but this is going to be really provocative, whatever. Whereas this, I cannot grasp any angle that an agent could sell you on this. Right, because it's, it's like this type just of film. Like, it's bad.
1: There's several of them come out every year in Britain and Ireland. And it's like light, silly, stupid comedies and rom-coms that have sort of a quaint and like grandma-friendly vibe. And most of them aren't very good, but they're like inoffensive. And occasionally you'll get, you know, Judy Dench will be in it or something. And then this is like the version of that, which is just a catastrophe. <laughs>
0: Also, like, I love a romantic comedy. I would love for them to exist in greater numbers and actually to be good. So, like, I obviously support actors doing them, but this one, I, what did they think was going to happen? I don't... They were, we're hypnotized, just, like, they were hypnotized like,
1: by the name John Patrick Shanley and just went ahead with it without considering how people behave in rom-coms.
0: I also suspect that Jamie Dornan really wants to be working in Ireland, given that he had this in Belfast in quick succession, That seemed, and he did The Fall, which also was over there. Good for you. But again, don't do this one. Find something else. Like, produce If you're going to make else. a
1: movie that costs $5 million, I'm sure there's a lot of independent Irish filmmakers out there who can cast you in their werewolf movie or whatever.
0: Right. Uh, yeah, none of it. None of it makes sense. Again, like, I, he shouldn't have done it either, but Emily Blunt in particular, as we were saying up top, did, did someone have blackmail on her? Like, I do what? But, like, again, honestly, I found this very watchable and kind of mesmerizing. <laughs> so, if you want to watch something that is hilariously awful, you could do worse. It's free on Hulu right now, which is how I consumed it. So,
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Thanks to someone for like sponsoring this episode, requesting that we watch this hellscape. <laughs> we can now say we've seen Wild Mountain Time. <laughs> and at the least one person song. has decided to watch this movie as a result of us doing the podcast, and I'm like, Godspeed, buddy.
0: Yeah. Uh yeah, Wild well, Mountain Time, a beautiful song that has been just like co opted gruesomely for years. There's
1: two singing scenes in this. Oh, and at the end of the movie, they have a singing scene where all of the dead people who, cause like all the old characters die in this movie, like off screen. Obviously. And then they all come back for a little sing song at the end of the film. And I was like, the one part of this that rings true for me is like little old pubs where people play folk music, which is like very real. But even that you've managed to make this like corny as hell. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's so bad. Love it. It's, It's good to be reminded not to have respect for film stars.
0: Honestly, I mean, also, I remember thinking this when I saw, what was it, To the Wonder by Terrence Malick, an artist I respect more than John Patrick Shanley, but that movie is appalling. And I saw it in the theater, and I just remember thinking, you know what, because he made The Thin Red Line, which is my favorite film, I think it's the best film I've ever seen, and To the Wonder is garbage. And like, you know what, even the greats are fallible and can make bad things. We all so, have like, off days.
1: And if you're rewarded for those off days with the Tony Award, you will prolong that off day for seven years until everyone tells you to stop.
0: <laughs> oh, so next week, Gavio, why don't you tell the listeners what we will be watching? Very different. I'm from very excited. This week's.
1: We're going to watch the Matrix Resurrections, the new Matrix movie. Obviously that'll be out on HBO Max. But yeah, very excited to talk about that film. And as you know, I love The Wachowskis. My problematic faves.
0: Yeah, um, I am really bummed not to be seeing this in a theater because I was really looking forward to it. But at least we'll be able to watch it on our televisions. I'm really excited about this too. I have never seen the Matrix sequels. I will not be watching them. So I will bring my like, I kind of looked at the Wikipedia (laughs) thing on this. I was
1: considering rewatching the third one and I was like, maybe not. I do really like the second one. I think the second one is unfairly maligned. It's no The Matrix, but it's got some great scenes and great characters. Um, But yeah, I feel like I probably don't need to rewatch the third one. They're going in a very fresh direction, which I respect the opposite of most Hollywood reboots and sequels right now. So yeah, love it.
0: So I think that will be really fun to talk about reviews. Early reviews are great. If you would like to support us on Patreon, if you would like to request that we watch a terrible movie of your choice or perhaps a good film, you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. If you would like to leave us a review um, on Apple Podcasts, a five-star review is particularly helpful for visibility, and we would really appreciate it. And Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online?
1: You can find my work at The Daily Dot, and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor.
0: And you can find my work at Bustle, and you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxed at M.L. Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverInvestedPod, our Tumblr is OverInvestedPodcast, and our website is OverInvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.